Welcome to Fresh from the Field Fridays by the Produce Industry Podcast, your weekly download on supply trends, category updates, brand awareness, and what's hot in the market. Join us each week from San Francisco Bay, California, as we cover all aspects of the produce supply chain industry. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Dan, the Produce Man. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh from the Field Fridays on this lovely, lovely Friday in February. Today's Fresh from the Field Fridays is brought to us by the Produce Industry Podcast and sponsored by Buck Naked Onions, Equifruit, the only banana you should buy, Dole Fresh Fruit Company, and Sunrays, the snack with impact. Yes, folks, I'm Dan the Produce Man. It is February. It is Potato Lovers Month. And potatoes, from what I have been reading for several years, is the number one vegetable in the United States. So with us today is Armand Labato with the Idaho Potato Commission. And Armand is with pretty much the food service side of it, which deals with restaurants and industry and the whole bit. So those French fries that you get at the at the restaurant, well, hey, they could be good Idaho potatoes. Armand, welcome to Fresh from the Field Fresh from the Field Fridays. Thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure to be here. Armand, I have a few things here in front of me. I've got a book called Potato Garden, The Potato Garden by Maggie Oster. And in this book, some 200 species of wild common potatoes still exist in the area stretching from southwestern United States to Chile. Most have small bitter tubers. The potatoes we enjoy today are the result of centuries of selection and both unintentional and intentional crossbreeding, mostly from a handful of species. That's pretty cool, huh? That's just a little potato tip to open up our potato program. A lot of people may not realize is potatoes are relatively new to uh, cuisine of the world. Um, they were, quote, discovered uh, by uh, early explorers in the, what is now current-day Peru in the mountains there and brought back to Europe. And you're right, there are hundreds of uh, varieties of different kinds of potatoes. But up until uh, late 1600s, early 1700s, potatoes were relatively unknown to the world. And today they are indeed the number one vegetable, not only in the United States, but in the world, oh, in fact. Yeah, man. United States grows a lot of potatoes. And uh, countries that grow much more than the United States are countries like uh, India, Pakistan, uh, Russia, and China leads the list, which is surprising because when was the last time you had Chinese food with a potato in it? Well, maybe it's all for export. Who knows? You're right. That is. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm sure they consume it. It's a, Well, China is a relatively closed society, so we don't hear a lot about what goes on interior, interior-wise, but... You well, know, maybe they'll over, send uh, the information on a balloon or something. Yeah, <laughs> now you're talking, yeah. That's what was in that balloon. Potato. Potato recipes. And, you know, they have over a billion people in their population. So, And potatoes are uh, nutrient-dense and low-calorie, very healthy. So it only makes sense for them to adopt potatoes as a good food source. Yeah, and, you know, I was reading in another book called Potato by Alex Barker. 
that the pre-Inca Indians were actually, they discovered the uh, potatoes in the, like you said, in the foothills of the Andean Mountains of South America, dating all the way back to 400 BC on the shores of Lake Titicaca, in the ruins of Bolivia, and on the coast of Peru. And then the Incas took it and started cultivating it. And then that's when the, the explorers came along and, uh, Right. Around 1553, it says Spanish conquistador yeah. Pedro right. Cieza de Leon grabbed those spuds along with a lot of other things from those folks <laughs> yeah. and brought yeah. them to Europe. <laughs> yeah, the early explorers had the three Gs in mind. They were seeking to uh, find all the gold they could to convert uh, native peoples to uh, Christianity and, of course, glory for themselves. So God... Gold and glory, not necessarily in that order. Well, potatoes, hey, we're right in the midst of that God, glory, and what was the last one? I already forgot. Uh, God, glory, and... Uh, gold! Uh, gold, you of course, yeah. gold. There we go. Yes, yes. Yeah, so, so no, potatoes, uh, they do have an interesting history. And there's a really good book called, uh, if you're, if you're uh, so inclined, called Aristocrat in Burlap. Ooh. And that is put out by the Idaho Potato Commission. You can find it on Amazon. It is written by a one James W. Davis, and it chronicles, uh, you know, the Idaho Potato Commission, but also a lot of good Idaho and potato in general history. Excellent. So I'm going to add potatoes. That to my list. Uh, yeah, potatoes are uh, an amazing uh, vegetable. They're different from other vegetables. They have you know, a higher starch content and what we call solids. And that's really what potatoes, how they're measured is solids, which in the most simplest terms is plant tissue or edible uh, tissue versus water content. And as we all know, produce is mostly 90, 95% plus water. And potatoes, like your average russet uh, potato is 21% solid 79 percent water so it's a much wow. more dense product and so that that's how it differs from the others but uh, you talk about something that's completely edible and many varieties and the other varieties have a different may have a different uh, density of water ratio the solid water ratio yeah the waxier so potatoes yeah that, exactly when people say idaho potatoes instantly think the russet which Okay, it's probably the most popular, several varieties within that, but it's probably the most popular. But Idaho, you, you grow all the waxy potatoes, too. Why don't we explain oh, yeah. to folks what, what we mean by waxy potatoes? Well, waxy is just another term for that lower, solid, higher water content. And Idaho used to be a primarily a russet state, and sometimes people will look at any russet and say, oh, that's an Idaho potato. But an Idaho potato is any potato that's grown in Idaho. Even in someone's russet, backyard. Exactly. <laughs> if they're, yeah, if they grow in Idaho, it's an Idaho <laughs> potato. So, and, and over the past uh, few decades, uh, there's been some shifting, you know, mostly with different kinds of russets, but the... Waxy potatoes, for example, like right now, Idaho is number one in the yellow types of potatoes, uh -huh. okay. and number two in reds. And so they're they're uh, growing and growing, and 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 you know that's that's due to the popularity of those varieties and trends that are coming on everything. And there's so many different uh, varieties out there that that only makes sense as as demand shifts. So do growers as they shift to meet those demands. And people don't realize that the yellow potatoes, the red potatoes, the purple potatoes, there's even an orange one out there somewhere. I'd love to see it or even eat it uh, at some point. But those were actually 
there were those colorful varieties way back in the pre-Inca days that I read in this book here a few minutes ago. A lot of different colors w- way back in those days. Now they've you know been developed over the years. Yeah, if you, uh, it, I mean, all you have to do is Google different varieties of potatoes, and you'll come up with a whole myriad of of shapes and sizes and colors. And some of them have uh, fluted edges and. Uh, and some are oblong and some are roundish and, you know, uh, and some of them have multiple colors. And there's even been some that have been bred more recently to be proprietary so that when you make potato chips, they have very little caramelization or or maybe it's a red potato with a yellow flesh inside or, or those purple with the deep purple inside. So 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 people are always trying to uh, crossbreed different varieties and get different parentages, not just for the different colors and shapes, but also for common sense kind of things like storability, you know, because potatoes sure. are susceptible to chill damage or to minimize natural diseases or blights or things like that. So so they're always trying to make a better product, a better potato that holds up in storage and doesn't chill so easy or doesn't green up as easy under light, things like that. Here's one, candy stripe, mid-season, white skin with red stripes, white flesh, flavorful, good produce. That's one out of tons in this book. Oh, now, yeah. obviously we'll never see that in the stores, but maybe in your backyard you could experiment you never know. around with it. But, well, that's true. Some some chef may make it super super popular, and everyone will right. have to grow it again. And uh... I did I did uh, read a piece from a food writer that went to South America. I can't remember the name of this writer, but he came back actually very critical of United States potato growers yeah. because he saw the same thing. He saw all these different kinds and cool shapes and sizes of potatoes, and his challenge was, why aren't we growing those varieties? And it's very simple because if there's no demand, growers aren't going to grow them. I mean, why would you risk that? You only grow what you can sell. That's right. And so, and and things like that do get introduced into the market. And usually they take the path of the specialty sure. or realm of produce. You know, you know, years ago, fingerling potatoes were this very strange potato. And I remember we used to market them on our wet racks and put them in little trays and nobody bought them. Yes, and... that's right. They turn green and you throw them away. <laughs> they turn green, you throw them away. And so many years later, as those potatoes began to get acceptance, we found success by putting them in little one pound packages, overwrapped, taking them off the wet rack, putting them with the potatoes on a little side kicker type table. And suddenly customers were picking them up. And and sometimes they would be just the uh, the white potato or the Russian banana or the red potato or the purple fingerling, or sometimes we'd mix them up. But we were able to have a pretty good inventory turn by marketing them that way. So uh, so sometimes it just takes some some better in, uh, education and some better marketing to, to get some of these varieties. But certainly th- those are the kind of things that come come on slowly and so those potatoes may make a route maybe through like a Melissa's or a Frida's uh, specialty and slowly things like that becomes mainstream so I think that's that's the normal path but it's certainly not because we're just ignoring the fact that there's hundreds of other varieties. I mean, we, like I said, we, if, if someone came to us and said, I need 500 acres of a certain variety, of course, there's going to be a grower that, that does that. Yes, and people don't realize it takes a long time for a variety to get to the general public, uh, like those fingerlings. I mean, it does. It takes a lot of research, oh, yeah. and, and not just the research on whether people will like it or not, uh, research with chefs and how it cooks up, how long it holds up, and, and yeah. the growing conditions and everything else. 
So it is a long process. So if you've got a great potato idea, it may be <laughs> 20 years down the road. I was on a tour a few years ago where we went through a Patandon uh, set up in their fields. And, and, you know, we went through their normal packing house and tour of their fields. But one part of it was especially interesting. That was the, the series of greenhouses that they had. Oh, and yeah. in these greenhouses, they were exactly the thing you were describing, where they would have dozens and dozens of different kinds of potatoes. And they had these bins, these plastic bins filled with the different kind of potatoes, you know, different sizes and colors and shapes. And our host explained that they might try, you know, 50 or even 100 different varieties. And they may find out of all those varieties, maybe one potato right. that they think is marketable. Sure. And, and then they'll go to the next step where they plant 50 acres and see how it's accepted, you know. And and so it is. It's a very slow process to, to get something from the drawing board to the consumer's plate. Sure. I, it reminds me of the Juicy Crunch Tangerine grown by uh, Noble Citrus down in Florida. That was 40 years in the making, man. 40 years. Oh, yeah. So, you know, but now it's now it's here. So, you know, one thing, we would be in really big, big trouble if we lost potatoes again. I think this book I was reading says that by the end of the 18th century, the potato was becoming a major crop, particularly in Germany and Britain. And, of course, it does mention the other countries that you just mentioned as far as the top producers. Now, this is 1999 at the time Russia was number one. But it also said that the potato became such a staple not just to feed people but to feed animals that produced meat and eggs and milk and, and, and those things that when that famine hit in the early 1800s in Ireland, that's why it was so devastating. They relied on that crop uh, specifically for almost everything. If we just think about it, if we lost lost a potato crop today in this world, you wouldn't have french fries. <laughs> you, <laughs> you wouldn't have curly fries, cross-cut fries. You wouldn't have mashed would, potatoes, baked potatoes. I mean, we wouldn't have them. That was an especially uh, tragic, sad episode in history. There's a really good book called Seeds of Change that touches on that. And I also have heard bits and pieces from other people in the industry. But in Seeds of Change, they talk about how potatoes are probably the single produce item that had such a profound effect on humanity. Because what happened was Ireland did adopt the potatoes in the 1800s. And Ireland went from something like 1 million population. And over a very brief period of time, something like 10 or 20 years, they doubled and doubled again and up to 10 million in population. And it was because they had a food source that would right. uh, support that many people. And uh, what my old boss told me was that the, the mistake that was made was that the seed that they used for growing new crops, because this didn't happen in one year, this happened over a period of a few years. And the seed potatoes tended to be old potatoes, the pulled potatoes that they didn't, or not old, but I should say the, the weaker potatoes, oh, the, the, the potatoes that, the, uh, yeah, they didn't take the best of their crop. They took the worst. And then on top of that, they just didn't have the science to, to deal with the blight because it's an airborne type of uh, disease with the plants. In addition to that, they didn't have other good agricultural practices known to them at the time, you know, like crop rotation, you know, which would have strengthened their crops and everything. So there was a combination of things that happened that caused the blight. And when a blight hits, it affects the foliage of the plant 
and also the tubers or the potatoes beneath. It just turns them to mush and they're inedible. And so what happened after that was devastating. With no food source, millions of people starved. Millions more people immigrated to the United States. And it was so bad, according to the Seeds of Change book, that it was described as the whole villages had they didn't have enough people to bury their dead oh, because boy. of all the, I mean, this was really, this This sounded almost like, a, what's the word? A, Apocalyptic. Yeah, there you go. I'm glad. Yeah, easy for you to say. So it was it was that bad. It was to that level. And what was especially bad was the surrounding countries of Ireland weren't necessarily very kind to them. And so it wasn't like, you know, they said, hey, our neighbors are hurting. Let's lend a hand. You know, we're talking about the 1800s where they, you know, it wasn't quite like a Braveheart kind of scenario, but right. it wasn't it wasn't good either. So they so they tended to, to not be as helpful, like, hey, we'll let these poor people deal with their own mess. And, and it was it was really really bad but fortunately since then so much has changed you know we uh, it to today in idaho for example you know they regularly uh, rotate crops they're always on the lookout for any potential pests or blights and you know there's a, a series of different te uh, tests and sticky traps and everything else you can imagine that they use so that even if they find the least amount of problem they can isolate fields um they have plenty of different uh, compounds to treat those fields with to deal with that. So whether it's a insect or, or plant damage or plant disease kind of thing. So there's the, and, and yeah, the university of Idaho has a team of scientists and that's their sole job is just to study potatoes, not just for Idaho potatoes, but for the entire industry sure. throughout the world. So, so they're constantly studying anything that could possibly threaten that food source. And the crop rotation is very regular. Sometimes you've heard, uh, some people uh, be critical of United States growers and call them, say that these are monolithic fields or, you know, where, you know, it's just one species, but sure. that's only partially true because the very next year it could be corn or wheat. It could be grains. It could be alfalfa. It could be, uh, and then back to potatoes. So, so they're always rotating that. That keeps things healthy and and thriving. And and there's a lot of science behind the scenes that a lot of people don't realize. Plus, there's soil tests and water tests and third-party audits. So there's a lot going on to ensure that 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 doesn't happen. Wow, that's a lot. And oh, <laughs> Armin Lobato is our guest with the Idaho Potato Commission. And when we come back from this break. We're going to get into the other things that make Idaho potatoes so special, like the conditions, the, just the natural conditions that are there for it as well. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome to Equifruit, an importer and marketer of fresh bananas. Equifruit is committed to 100% fair trade, which means no crummy wages, super safe working conditions, and nothing but love for the ladies. Driving innovation through impossible to ignore merchandising, Equifruit is the only banana you should buy. Everyone, we have an APP out on a buck naked onion. This onion is produced by Owyhee Produce, so we have to be on the lookout. Whether you're a retailer, food service distributor, or a wholesaler, this onion is whole, it's hearted, and it's buck naked, everyone. To all you civilians out there, please, let's catch this buck naked onion. Okay, folks, welcome back. 
This is Fresh from the Field Fridays. I'm Dan, the Produce Man. My guest today is Armand Lobato with the Idaho Potato Commission. Armand, what are the natural circumstances that just all came together perfectly to make the Idaho potato the most tastiest potato on the planet? Well, Dan, you have to go back many, many years uh, when you're talking about Idaho potatoes, not so much in Idaho, but elsewhere, because potatoes originating in those uh, Peruvian mountains, I mean, it says something. Potatoes grow best. They like to grow up in a certain kind of environment, higher elevation, warm days and cool nights. And when Luther Burbank botanist back in the 1800s was traipsing around the country, he had developed a rusted potato he thought was a real winner. And he traveled all over the country, planting his potato in different states, trying to find the ideal environment. And he found it in Idaho. Idaho has higher elevation, the warm days and cool nights. The soil is volcanic soil broken down over millennia time. And it's the kind of soil that like if you go up to the bench, what we call the bench in the uh, in that Snake River Valley in Idaho, it just crumbles through your hands. This environment is in southern part of the state of Idaho. It follows the Snake River. And so not all of Idaho is potatoes, believe it or not. It's concentrated mostly along that Snake River. And so they have ample mountain-fed water supplies, plus they've got a nice healthy aquifer beneath the state. And so they have the water, they've got that volcanic soil. And the warm days and cool nights are key because sure. the the we're talking like in the summertime when the daytime temperatures are 85, 90 degrees. Right. And it can drop down into the 40s at night. I mean, even the high 30s. And we're talking like get your jacket out in the middle of July cool. Sure. And 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 it's very and the technical term for it is called a diurnal shift. And you hear that sometimes uh, with the grape growers for wines, the fine wines, because they have the same kind of thing where they like the warm days and the cool nights. And it keeps pests away naturally, but potatoes tend to thrive in that kind of environment because during the day, the, the foliage absorbs all that sunlight and then it transfers the carbohydrates down into the tubers during the nighttime. So it's a natural cycle of, of transfer of the heat units into the potatoes. And by the time July 4th comes along, we you know, I should back up a little. We start planting, you know, in spring, as soon as the ground is workable and everything, the potatoes are, are planted in late March and early April. And and so by the time July 4th rolls around, all the furrows of those potatoes tend to close in on each other to form a canopy. And that protects the soil underneath wow. so that it's just a few degrees, but it's enough of a temperature to keep that soil at the right temperature. And so it just creates the oh, perfect ideal environment for potatoes and with the right irrigation and because it is a semi-arid area you know they they need to be sure. ir irrigated now a hundred years ago maine was the big potato That's grower right. in the united states i remember that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I think we both. I think I think we both do. Yeah, back a hundred years ago, you remember that, Dan? I do so, remember Maine potatoes very well, though. I've lived the yeah. first ten years of my life in Vermont, and we used yeah. to go to Maine, and we would get potatoes out of Maine. Sure. Yeah, and actually, yeah. to this day, every state grows some potatoes, but Idaho grows one third of the nation's potatoes, oh, and the reason okay. is because they have that ideal environment. What changed? 
Idaho into such a big producing uh, potato producing state besides its natural environment was the advent of electricity. Because with electricity that started to come to rural areas in the 1920s or so, now you were able to get away from just irrigating from the river. And now you could sink wells. And with electricity, you had pumps and yeah. irrigation sprayers. And with, when you fly over all these fields and you see those crop circles, that's the irrigated uh, fields that uh, are enabled to do so because of, of electricity and being able to pump that water to where it's needed on that absolutely wonderful volcanic soil. Folks, now you know where crop circles come from. It's not from spaceships. <laughs> it's from the irrigation in the potato fields fields. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. You mentioned that it's not just potatoes in Idaho, and you're right. It's We get really good apples from Idaho. We get fantastic mm -hmm. stone fruit. Oh, and yeah. What I like about it is the stone fruit season is a little bit later than it is here in California. So when I had my produce market and the good varieties like the old, the old Henry, which I think is the last great variety of peach, is done here in California, we would get them in from Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, so it would extend the the season. So it was re really nice. So Idaho is is great growing conditions for for a lot of commodities, but obviously potatoes is is the big one. Yeah, potatoes is what Idaho is most well known for. In fact, they love it so much they put it on their license plate. Famous potatoes. Yes, that's so, right. I forgot about. But that. but yeah. you're right, and it always drove me crazy in retail when store managers were all too eager to pull the labor hours out of produce departments just because oh, it was yeah. September. And they said, you know, summer's over, take 40, 50 hours out of your schedule. And they oh, would look oh, and say, are you yeah. crazy? Because we still had all that great Northwest for fruit. And it was great. It really was. I remember one one week in, in particular, I was buying for a chain in Southern California called Henry's. And we had Idaho peaches on ad first week of October of all times, October now. Yeah. Wow! And, and yeah. I and and the guys didn't commit for much. They you know and they never did you know because they didn't want to be held accountable for uh, having too much stock on hand. So I think they committed for a couple of loads, and I knew it would take three three loads just to fill the pipeline. Sure. And uh, we got that triple S uh, label, oh, yes. Idaho Absolutely. Idaho yes. peaches, and these things. Uh, as you know, in the business, when something's especially good, you know, we refer to them as diamonds, you know, because they were right. just so beautiful, high blush, you know, beautiful peaches. And I mean, this was, this was as good as good as it gets. It was like the, the, the last great send off before uh, fall really hit. And we went through about 15 straight loads that week, you know, oh, for, wow. for, for, thir for 33 stores, I think. I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> so, sure. so it was, yeah. But you know, the funny thing about uh, Idaho is, I mean, as as much as potatoes are known for, it's it's not even the leading agricultural product. I think uh, dairy is. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, yeah, because they get a lot of a lot of hay cuttings. You know, a lot of hay cuttings means you can support a lot of cattle. Any state that can grow, there's your food source again. If you can grow, sure. uh, have extra cuttings of hay, then you have extra cattle. That's why places like Wisconsin or California or now uh, and Idaho have such strong dairy programs. Hey Armin, let's uh, let's talk about French fries real quick because it's well you, you know <laughs> I love the Kennebec potato or like varieties. I even made 
my uh, mashed potatoes this past Thanksgiving with, with the Kennebec. And I've done it before. And a lot of folks prefer that for French fries. Either they're cooking them wrong or I've just never really had them really good. I don't go to the In-N-Out and I know that they, they use that, but I just don't, I don't eat those. But we had a, a place here in town that was, it was a guy down the street from my store. He'd buy about 10 or 15 sacks of Kennebecs per week and he'd make his French fries with them. And they were always so soggy. And then I had another guy who would buy a lot of russets from me. I mean, a lot. And he did this two-step process where he made his french fries from russets, and they were absolutely outstanding. So what, uh, I guess it's just preference, I I would say, but but a lot of the potatoes go into processing to make frozen french fries as well. Right. About 60% of Idaho's crop does go to processors, which the bulk of that would be uh, fries or or other potato products. And 80% of Washington's potato crop goes to processing. So yeah, the processing business is a tremendous uh, segment. And when you talk about french fries, it's I kind of laughed at first because especially Especially in a world of healthy eating and everything, probably the single most question that we field is, how do I make a better French fry? You know, it's it's that. How do I how do I build a better mousetrap? So and and it is hard to beat a good Idaho Burbank recipe for ideal French fry because. It is the perfect combination of sugar that caramelizes on the outside. You have length, you have color, you have crispiness, and especially when you do the two-step process, which you mentioned, which is, which is a par fry, and then you, for a few minutes, and then you set it aside. And the the guy, the the restaurants that do this right, they know that they they do the par fry as part of their prep. And if you go to like in a five guys, you'll see all those French fries just staged ready for their lunch and dinner rushes. And those potatoes have already been cooked one time. And then they have a final cook where for just a few more minutes and that gives them that extra crispy texture and flavor. And it's uh, the proven method. Now, not everybody does that. No, that's so, true. I like to bite into a French fries and taste potato flavor. Yeah. That earthy potato <clears throat> flavor, not just right. something, some crunchy thing. Like some of these, fat. Yeah. I want that earthy potato flavor. So one thing we try to emphasize to people is that if you are committed to a fresh cut fry program, it's a lot of work, but it also has a lot of benefits because you're talking about something that can be customized. It can be a signature item for them. It's something that even some restaurants have built their program around where, where instead of a protein being that center of the plate. It is the French fry. And and then, oh, you can have a hot dog or a hamburger with it, but their fries is what people would draw people in. And we even had a program a few years ago that showed that when people get that meal with the fries or they get the meal with mashed potato, they tend to take a bite of the potato first before they even... T- <laughs> so it's, it's, of course, it's right yeah. There, and I, I, and I, I don't know about everybody else, but when I'm driving home with a, a few burgers from McDonald's, you know, my hand is in that bag eating French fries on the way home because because that's what we do. In fact, I always get an extra fry just because of that because it's, a, <laughs> you know, because I know that's one of those smart. one of those orders is going to be gone by the time I get home. So it is... It's a it, America has a love affair with French fries, and it is an insatiable demand. It certainly so, is. But I do want to touch on the Kennebec portion of what you mentioned. Yes, please. So uh, a, a Kennebec is a it's a generic term, and it's more used on the West Coast probably than any other part of the country. It's a it's a it's a potato that it does actually doesn't really exist anymore. It's, it's a, a potato, it's a right? it's an old it's an old variety, and it falls under what we call chip or chipper. 
potatoes. And so the, the this is a potato that's uh looks like a utility roundish potato. It, it could be one of many dozen of, of varieties and it's a high starch, low sugar potato. So when that is made into a french fry, it doesn't caramelize very much and it has a a different texture and some chefs really swear by it but 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 i think it's just because you know someone said hey try the we need Kennebec. We need Kennebec. And a Kennebec, or a, well, we call a chip potato, is uh, it doesn't have very good storage characteristics. You've probably seen these in your warehouses where, you know, you get them in on one day and t- a few days later, they've just melted. They don't have any yeah. good st- storability to it. And the sizing is all over the board. And they tend to be a little pricier than most potatoes. So there's a lot of things that we look, scratch our head and go, why does anybody want this potato in the first place? Right, right. I bet. Yeah. Well, that was, yeah. well, was my thought, too, especially right in the middle of the palate. You usually get some breakdown, you know, yeah. and, and it would smell. Oh, man, oh yeah. So some, But sometimes people look at In-N-Out Burger and they say, you know, they're successful. I want to do what they're doing. And that includes using a chipper type of potato. And it may or may not be, uh, you know, what people go there for in the first place. So and the very name chip potato is comes about because the vast majority of those kind of potatoes go to the Frito-Lays of the world, where they will turn those into potato chips. That's why they're called chippers. (laughs) <laughs> right, they're chippers because they make them into potato chips. And, and if you, that's your Lay's potato chip, which is not a caramelized chip. It's a white chip, uh, very little blemishes on it. And and the larger potatoes get chip, chipped into uh, large chips that go into the big family bags, and the smaller chips end up in the deli size bags. So you have a, a home for all those. And so the fresh business really gets everything else, which isn't a whole lot. So so the fresh portion of this of this chip or Kennebec segment, it doesn't really represent a, a very big portion of, of their crops. And Idaho does grow quite a bit of these chip potatoes. We can't store them for very long past, you know, like spring because they don't store well, even under ideal storage sure. conditions. So that's why when we're done storing these potatoes, the chip manufacturers have to go to other states. And so they're constantly chasing this supply all over the country, trying to uh, to keep that potato in stock. Yeah, we used to grow a lot of them right here in California. Every May mm-hmm. is when the new crop, Kennebec or Chipperbeck or whatever you want yeah. to call it. So when right. I have a chef tell me I only use Kennebecs, I can say that <laughs> variety is extinct. That variety well, been well, gone it's, it's, for several yeah. years. I'll try to find a good graph that I have. It's a pie graph that shows all the different varieties. Oh, that would of, be great. And and uh, and the Kennebec is the smallest sliver of available varieties. And and it's it's actually a source of of to- a topic that uh, that frequently comes up when I visit distributors around the, the, the around the West. You know, they uh, because people want to know about it. Now, Idaho does uh, s- several of the shippers do grow a chip potato. And one that comes to mind in particular is uh, one from Wada Farms. And it's a label called Joe's Best. And what's unique about that is that they, they do tend to size it a lot better. And and I think a lot of people are happier than some of the stuff they get out of like uh, Washington or California, you know, the Hollywood Fries label or the or the Chipper Beck, only because it's sized better and it, it's a consistent uh, variety. And so a lot of people have had luck with that. And and they are starting to grow more and more of that. And and even growing some out of state, you know, just trying to keep a supply going. 
going because uh, once we get past spring, they try to find other sources to keep their customers supplied. I remember distinctly those big potato sacks. I always said frost, frost business or frost potato sales. Frost sales, like yeah, that, right. Uh, on them. But on the yeah. healthier side of potatoes, Armin, we're looking at you know, 620 to 650 milligrams of potassium. That's more than what you get in a, bana- in a banana. Sorry, Kim Shakel from Equifruit. But uh, <laughs> you, got, you do get more potassium in a potato than you in a banana. And you got vitamin C and vitamin B and, and, and some fiber. And also, there's a book called Potatoes, Not Prozac, and I always forget the author's name. I have it here somewhere. She's a French lady, and she swears that part of her treatment for people is to eat a potato before you go to bed at night to help cure depression and anxiety and, and things of that nature. Yeah, potatoes are an amazing food source. I mean, when you think about it, potatoes have sustained entire civilizations. We're talking not only the Peruvians, the Irish, but in uh, World War II, Two, the United States government was desperate trying to find a good food source for the troops overseas that was easy to store, easy to transport, high nutrition, and the potato fit all those boxes. And it was in a dehydrated form. Of course, that was Simplot in the early days, and that's what put them on the map. But uh, you're talking about a dehy product, which is still very popular and applicable today for food service uh, and and beyond. You know, if if you haven't had a, a dehydrated potato lately, it's worth a try. You know, there's a lot of good products on the grocery shelves like Idahoan, and you just add hot water and you have potatoes or, you know, the algorithm rotten boxes and so on. But uh, but yeah, as far as nutrition goes, I mean, potatoes are very nutrient dense. They're heart healthy. There is zero fat in a potato, very low calories, and a host of vitamins and minerals, including high vitamin C, high potassium. In fact, I just uh, took my dear sweet mom some lunch today. She's 87 years old. And nice. the doctor told her that she needed more potassium. And I said, potatoes eat potatoes because she was eating a banana. Sorry, banana guys. I mean, I love bananas too, but there, but yeah, it's I think I read it's twice as much potassium as a banana. And and honestly, I mean, it's, it it really is an amazing uh, food source. And you know what, I think what gives potatoes the occasional bad name is that, you know, all the um, unhealthy stuff we add to it, you know, the, the oh. bacon and butter and all that stuff, you know, the sour cream. So, I mean, even though I put all that stuff on it, like, like yeah. every, everybody else, I'll admit, but yeah, by itself. In fact, uh, there have been people that have gone on potato diets that have lost weight and their cholesterol has gone from bad to good. And even, even with the, uh, glycemic concern, if you eat the waxy potatoes, the reds, the whites, they tend to have a much lower glycemic value. So there is some alternatives to just russets if they're worried about that part of it. Sure. And you know, with a, with a baked potato, uh, we were talking during the break, you and I, and I was telling you about some videos that I made that I never posted because I just didn't like them. But in those videos, I take a baked potato, a russet, and I have a couple of versions. Uh, instead of butter, I, I just drizzle a little bit of olive oil on it. I put some hummus, some chopped up green onions, and um, the heck else did I put on there? Well, we'll have to find out. I'll have to dig that video out and 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 salvage it somehow and put it out there. But you can do other things besides besides bacon and 
and sour cream and, and butter. Of course, you, you, yeah. You, so much, absolutely, just just in, in curry, curry sauce. I mean, you know. Yeah. So you know, a we have a we have a very aggressive and fast website that we're real proud of, IdahoPotato.com. Real easy to remember, and we probably have close to two thousand potato recipes on there, and it grows all the time. Every time I think there's no new way for people to fix potatoes, there's chef out there working uh, overtime to prove me wrong, and and uh, there are nice. ma- many, many, many recipes, including lots of ways to eat potatoes that are that are healthy and yet you know very tasty, and you can keep them interesting. And it's truly a miraculous vegetable. There we go, folks. That ain't no dud. It is the spud. <laughs> Make sure you get it in your diet, folks. Harvin Lobato from. Idaho Potato Commission, thank you so much for joining us today on Fresh from the Field Fridays. Thank you, Dan. Always a pleasure to be here. Hey, folks, be sure to tune in to the Produce Industry Podcast every Monday with Patrick Kelly, as well as the Produce Industry Show on YouTube and the Produce Industry app. you got to have that. Download that now on your smartwatch your phone, your tablet, wherever you can download apps, put that on there. And don't forget to check out my YouTube and Rumble pages called Dan the Produce Man. And all my social media can be found at DanTheProduceMan.com. Until next week, this is Dan the Produce Man reminding you that it's always best when you get it fresh. You've been listening to Fresh from the Field Fridays with Dan, the Produce Man. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Anchor to get fresh weekly episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Produce Industry Podcast and at Dan, the Produce Man. Until next time, see you in the fields or on the horizon.